Well, 21, days, or 21 years ago, uh, I remember being uh, kind of in high school in England, visiting my uh, grandparents who lived close to the school. And when I walked into the front room, I saw on the television set uh, an image that even now, even not as an American, was burned into my mind uh, of two towers burning. It was a horrible, horrible day, and one that we rightfully remember even 21 years later. And so this morning, as we remember that moment uh, as a nation, I want us to also be kind of spared by that remembrance to pray to the God who is our peace, who even today is evil still is out there in our world and for some people is far more real than others. Just ask the God of all grace and peace to come to be a part of our world, to grieve with us, but also to move and to set right what is broken. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, holy is your name. We praise you in this place this morning because you have made our salvation your concern. You see our lives. You see our brokenness and our pain, our suffering. God, you see our division and our strife, our wars and our hostility towards one another. You see us and you make us your concern. You acquainted yourself with our sorrows and with our grief, with our burdens. By sending your son in the likeness of sinful man, you took upon yourself all that was upon us. And so today, Lord, as we remember those who have been lost and the evil that took them, the evil that still lacks in our world today, we turn towards you. We see around us desperately in need of your peace and we turn towards you. We pray you would see us that you would come and bring justice, redemption, healing, and salvation to a world that longs for your return. You've asked us as your people to mourn with those who mourn and to express grief for that which causes you grief. And so today we remember those lives that were lost on September 11th, 2001. Lord, that broke your heart, that grieved you deeply. We pray for those in our own family and our own communities whose grief is still heavy today, who felt loss on that day and still feel that loss of any kind. We also pray for those in military service whose continued service fights for our freedom and our safety. God, we ask for your grace on those who risk themselves for our sake and for our families. We also know that your gaze is on much more than our own nation today that you see the terror that is all around the world. And so, Father, we pray specifically for those who face that today. We pray for the nation of Ukraine. Lord, bring an end to the violence. Protect those families. We think of our own brothers and sisters in Christ who are there facing frightening circumstances. Missionaries from Chapel Street who we see going through the streets with those communities. We ask that you would care for them and lead them. We ask for the hearts of the leaders in both sides of the conflict, to turn towards you, to repent of their sins and seek the welfare of their people and of their neighbors. Father, we thank you that we can turn towards you in moments of great grief, in moments of need. We thank you that you hear us, that you see us, and that you are moving us towards the day when all war and strife will cease and you will bring peace. And so we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. So I met my husband five years ago. We were playing Ultimate Frisbee, 
and we're part of this group that just kind of gathers in the park. One Saturday, he had sent me a message online asking if I wanted to go to coffee or something, and so then, yeah, that's how we got a relationship going from that point on. So when we first started looking for a home, we weren't sure what neighborhood we wanted to live in. We started looking at homes in North Aurora and really fell in love with the area. Everybody that I've met or encountered seems really nice as well. And there's also diversity within the neighborhood. I'll see different people, different ethnic backgrounds. I even have some neighbors who I can talk in Spanish with, which has been kind of cool. We started learning about Chapel Street Church when during the pandemic we saw some signs around people's lawns that were like, oh, Chapel Street, you know, um, keep God close, everybody else should be six feet away. I thought that was a fun way to engage with the neighborhood as well as just seeing how many of our actual neighbors are attending this church. So my husband and I checked it out, started watching online, and then when the campuses opened up again, we went to Mill Creek. We visited there one Sunday and we met Pastor Sterling and we told him, yeah, we're new, we're here from North Aurora. He goes, North Aurora? There's a campus opening in North Aurora this fall. And we're like, what? And so he's like, I'm going to have you meet Pastor Andrew, who also happened to be there that Sunday. So we got to meet him right away and he was telling us about the church and just got to share in the excitement of, wow, we could have a campus right by our home that we could walk to. We could be part of a launch, which is something we haven't done before and just get to see God develop and build a church campus near us. When the campus actually launched in September 2021, we were very excited and very ready to get involved. And it was very meaningful for, I would say, myself, my husband in particular, because now we started to meet the faces and the families associated with the signs that were in the lawns during the pandemic. It was a big piece of us feeling connected and excited about building a church. So being part of a neighborhood church in a neighborhood that I live in has been really meaningful because it creates a different level of concern for my neighborhood. I feel like I want my neighbors to know about Jesus, but I also want them to feel like they can have a place to come to and just not just turn to me as a neighbor, but also they know that they can turn to Chapel Street as a church. And my husband and I really have a desire to help serve in the church. So wherever there is a need that presents itself, um, we like to just step up because we're in a time in our lives where we don't have children, um, we're right by the church, we work from home, and so we really have a lot of time and availability that we want to dedicate to serving the Lord. I've been a part of other churches before that have you know, a vision to expand, but when I understood Chapel Street's specific mission of being a neighborhood church and in the community, it's really neat to experience that and to see the impact that that can have because it's now a center point of the neighborhood. Since we've launched the North Aurora campus, uh, it's really been instrumental in getting me excited about you know, having a relationship with God and a relationship with others. And it's also raised a level of awareness and concern and um, passion for my community that I want my neighbors to know about this church. I want my neighbors to know Jesus. When I think about a year from now, five years from now, it's very exciting to consider all that God's going to do here in this neighborhood, all that He already has done. When you can reflect back already on His faithfulness and it's only been a year coming out of a pandemic, I mean, God's going to do so much more and we're so excited and we are here for it. I love that we got to have a special video kind of capturing our little experience as a campus. Uh, that's actually been shown at all of our campuses this morning, and it makes me incredibly proud of you guys. 
because Rachel sits here every week, Rachel and Steve. Uh, they're unfortunately, they're back there, our little celebrities this morning, so they don't, they don't have to be shy while I'm talking about them. But really, this is all of our story. This is all of y'all coming in and taking ownership of this neighborhood church vision to say, we want to be a part of what God's doing in our neighborhood. Uh, we want to serve, we want to lead. Uh, and so that I hope that you recognize, I felt this as, as campus pastor here, that video is not kind of simply a celebration of us and saying, great job, North Aurora. That's a challenge to us, a reminder to us that in all the subsequent years that we come back and say, no, we want to be that. We don't want to get away from that. We want to be a church that engages our neighbors, that loves our neighbors, that brings the gospel to people who are looking for it, who need it. Uh, And so before we get into the word today, as we are about to talk about the church, uh, I just want to pray together as a church family that God would keep our hearts on what his heart is on. Uh, that we wouldn't be distracted from that. So let's pray together. Father, thank you for this chance to come to your word. And God, we are so conscious, even as we celebrate a story like the one we just saw, uh, that God, our hearts would not ever depart from you. Uh, Father, it's so easy for us to make church something for ourselves. But Lord, we said we don't want to be a church for ourselves. We want to be a church for our neighbors. We know that you have called us here to this location, not primarily for ourselves, but for our neighbors that, Lord, your kingdom might increase, that the gospel might be shared, and that people who need you would meet you. So, Lord, we pray that this morning as we look in your word at what the church is called to be, that, God, you would challenge us to live out this calling to be your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, we're definitely kind of into the fall mode in the Griffiths household now. We've uh, kind of ended summer. Uh, and that's been sad, but summer was really fun for us. We did a lot of different things, but one of the things that I enjoyed most this summer is I was reading the final Harry Potter book to my two oldest boys. Uh, that was, I'd never read the books before. I was absolutely a movie guy before the books, uh, but it, so it was fun kind of seeing all the background information that I didn't know about, uh, and it was most of all, if you've never had the chance to read a book to a young kid, it is a blast to, be able to watch their facial expressions when things get revealed and everything happens. Uh, so it was a blast getting to do that. But uh, the other thing that we did alongside of it, which was the kids' favorite part about it, is we would read a chapter of the book and then we would watch the part of the movie that goes with that chapter so they could kind of see what we just read come to life on a big screen. Uh, and it was really fun getting to see them uh, get so excited about all these characters that they'd read about, that they'd been thinking about, because we read the whole series together kind of come to life. Uh, and they really, like most of us, they wanted a faithful depiction of what they'd just read, right? They get mad when things get away from what they've just read and they think, well, hang on, this is not what it's supposed to be like. Um, and so people get really whacked up with that. We've got the, all the Harry Potter movies here. And I have to say, as someone who had watched the movies first, I was a little bit kind of taken back by how changes can happen. You know, you get a movie that's not quite what you read about. The other one that's in the news right now is of called the uh, Amazon series, The Rings of Power. Has anybody watched this yet? Anybody Rings of Power people? Okay, you're my people. You're my people. It's a very nerdy show, I admit. If, you, if you're a fan of Lord of the Rings or Tolkien, you're like way deep in there. You know, maybe you've learned a little bit of Elvish just on the side, but you don't tell no one that you know it because it's a bit embarrassing. But people are really whacked up about this show. You know why? Because they want it to be a faithful depiction of what they've read in books like The Silmarillion. How many of you have never even heard of the book, The Silmarillion? Yeah, yeah, it, it's part of the Lord of the Rings series, but we've all had a Fellowship of the Ring, 
two towers, everything like that. But we've never heard of the Silmarillion, which is loosely what this series is based off. And so people are really concerned. We want this to be a faithful depiction of what we read. We want to see all these things that we've, we've read about, that we've imagined in our minds. We want to see it come to life. Now, don't you think that a church should be a faithful depiction of what we read in God's word? Shouldn't it be something that when we see churches and we go to church and when we are amongst the people of God, it should be something where everything that we've imagined in God's word, everything that God has put in our own hearts, that we see a faithful depiction of it around us. That when we sit in the seats at church, it's something that makes us go, yes, this is what God has spoken about. This is the picture that he gave us through Christ of this this people united around the cross who love one another, who serve one another, who love and serve their neighbors. We want to be a faithful depiction of what we read about in God's word. So we want to think about that over these last two weeks. We've been talking about this neighborhood church vision that we talk about a lot at Chapel Street. This vision that we have to be a family of neighborhood churches that serve our neighbors, that proclaim the gospel of Jesus. And last week, Pastor Jeff kind of led all of our campuses in this message of what is the church supposed to be? It's supposed to be a move of God's spirit amongst God's people for God's purposes and glory in the world. And this week, what we want to do is we want to get a little bit more specific and we want to ask ourselves, what is that supposed to look like in our midst, in our context? What is it supposed to look like in North Aurora to be a church that is moved by God's spirit, to be on mission for his purpose and his glory? What does that look like? Maybe the way we could ask this is, what's the original story of the church? What's the story that we are supposed to be faithful to? And there's a really great passage that kind of answers that question for us in the book of Acts, where we hear the story of what the church was like at its very moment of birth. What it was like when Jesus commissioned his people. This is from uh, Acts 2. And before we get there, though, I want to just remind us of the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.20. This is what he says about the church. He says, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So what Paul is saying is that the church, Christians are meant to be ambassadors of God's kingdom. We're supposed to be making an appeal to come to Christ and know Christ. So the question is, what does that appeal look like? What does our appeal look like? And Acts 2 is going to help us shape the answer to that question. And I think it's worth noting before we get into it, Christians have not always done a good job of what we're about to talk about. And we'll get into that a little bit. We haven't always been a faithful depiction of what God sets out for us as our mission. Um, a guy I listened to on a podcast called Undeceptions called John Dixon, he also wrote a book called Bullies and Saints. And in there he talks about how Christians have been called to play this beautiful symphony by God. We're kind of an orchestra of different instruments that collectively are playing the song of Christ. And sometimes we get off key a little bit and we're not playing what we should be playing. Or sometimes we play an entirely different song altogether. But that doesn't mean that the song that God gives us is any less valuable, that we shouldn't return to it and ask ourselves, what does our appeal look like? Are we a faithful depiction of God's love in the world? So let's look at Acts 2. Let's see what it says. This is what it says, Acts 2, 42 through 47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayers. And all came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. 
And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, people love this passage. Kind of, I've, you've probably heard a lot of people say, you know, we just need to get back to being a church like this. We need to be a church that is focused and devoted. And I think that that's true. But I also want to say the church has never been perfect. There's a reason why we need Jesus' forgiveness and grace is because in every age, including this one, there are problems. If you read the New Testament, even here, even at this moment, there are all kinds of things that Paul and Peter and the leaders of the church are working to try and correct and, and strengthen. There's moments when the church needs to be called to repentance. There's moments when the church is absolutely being celebrated. But what I think makes this passage valuable is that God, in kind of inspiring this record, is giving us a picture of what the church should look like and feel like. He's giving us a picture that I think has six different distinctives that teaches us, that can help shape for us today. This is what we're aiming for. This is what the symphony is supposed to sound like. And so again, we ask ourselves this morning, are we heading towards that picture? Are we moving towards this picture of the church? And while we examine these different distinctives this morning, I want to bring this to a North Aurora level. And I want us to ask ourselves as a church family, are we devoted to this picture? Not just Chapel Street, but are we here in North Aurora? Are we devoted to this picture? And even more, if we go down, I'm thinking, are we devoted to this in our families? Are we devoted to this individually? Am I devoted to this as a pastor? Are you devoted to this as a part of this body? So let's go ahead and take a look at how we can be a faithful depiction of what God intends for his church. First thing that we see in this passage is a learning community. The first distinctive is a learning community. Now, I am the kind of guy that uh, if I've got an Ikea project and I'm trying to build some furniture for the kids, there's this weird, you know exactly what I'm about to say. There's this weird sense in me as a dad that thinks I I cannot look at the manual I, need to, I have to be a man and I have to build this all by myself. I'm going to figure out where everything goes, right? They've already drilled half the holes for me. How bad can it really be? And inevitably, I always get in the situation where I've put something on backwards and I'm slowly figuring it out as I go deeper and deeper into my mess that I'm going to have to go back and read the manual and fix what I've messed up. Now, sometimes we as Christians, we can get a little bit off the manual, can't we? We can get a little bit off track as to what God has given us to follow through on. To, to depict. And the only way we can do that is by being a learning community that comes back to God's word and asks ourselves, what are we supposed to be? And this family uh, at the beginning of the church, this group in Acts 2, they're a group of people that want to be a learning community, that are constantly learning about God's word, learning about what it is that they've been called to. And the way that they do that is they constantly come back to God's word. We're told in Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the apostle teaching. Now, first of all, the word devoted, that's a big word, right? This is saying that this wasn't just a hobby for them. This wasn't just something that was kind of a curiosity. They were devoted to this. They set themselves aside to study what the apostles were giving them. And what was it that the apostles was giving them? What is it that they were being taught? It was the message of Jesus. It was the story of Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, It was the story of how Jesus himself was the fulfillment of everything that had gone before. We just finished a series looking at the book of Hebrews chapter 11 where we saw how Jesus was the fulfillment of all of these different stories. 
This is the kind of thing that these people got together to talk about. They were getting together to say, how is Jesus everything that we need? Why is this message of Jesus so important? What is it done for us? What has been accomplished in Christ? What does Christ want to do next? They devoted themselves to learning the answer to that question. This wasn't just a group of people who were sharing opinions about the state of the world around them or what they think that they should be doing as believers. This was a people who were dedicated to discovering what God said. John Stott, who, uh, by the way, was once the chaplain to Queen Elizabeth II, who's just passed, so I've been reading a couple of his words this week. He says that since the teaching of the apostles comes in the New Testament, then for us today, for us to be devoted to the apostle teaching means to be devoted to the word of God, to understanding what is it that this book is really saying to us. 2 Peter 3.18 says, Grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. The call on us if we're going to be a learning community is to be continually dedicated and devoted towards learning what the word of God says. And now that might seem to you like it's a bit of a non-starter. Well, of course, yeah, we go to church, we learn about the Bible. But the truth is we live in a culture that's largely, largely forgotten about what the word of God says. And, I, and that's not just something that's kind of out there. I think that that's even in, within the walls of the church. I remember when I started growing and going to church, I was discovering stories I had no idea were in that book. Stories like Hosea, the story of a prophet who was called to marry a woman who was unfaithful to him and love and serve her and be committed to her. Never knew there was a story like that in Scripture, certainly not in the Old Testament that I thought was so full of God's anger. I hadn't heard stories like Jonah. I'd heard the story of a man who was swallowed by a fish, but I didn't know that that was a story of a man who ran away from God's grace, but who God pursued and chased. There's so many different things in God's word that gives us a picture of who God is and what he's doing. And we need to be dedicated to continually learning about what's in these pages. It's not just for pastors. It's not just for theologians. It's for all of us. The knowledge of God isn't a hobby or an occasional activity. It's something that we need to hold our souls together. There's a beautiful picture of this in Acts 17, a little bit later in the book of Acts. There's a group of people called the Noble Bereans. And Paul is preaching this message of Jesus to them. And you know what they do when they hear him? They say, well, wait, we have to go check what you're saying against the word of God. We need to go find out, is this what God really has said? Is this the message that God has given us? Now, wouldn't that be fantastic if everywhere you went to share the gospel, someone said, hang on, I just want to check and make sure that this is legit. There's a lot of places in the church today where we can be so distracted by our own opinions, our own concerns, our fears, our burdens, and we forget that there is a treasure trove of goodness and grace available to us through God's word. That's why it's the center point of every church service that gathers today in America. It's because we need God's word. How can we grow in the love of God if we don't learn about it? How can we be confident in the love of God if we don't immerse ourselves in it? You know, a guy even here in our own community that, that reminds me of this value is Ron Kimmel. Where's Ron? There he is. Ron is a guy that every week he comes to me, talks to me at church about how much he loves God's word. He wants to learn about God. He asks me all these different questions. And we talk together about what is it that Jesus has said. And I love that. It inspires me. I think all of us should be like that. All of us should be a people dedicated to learning about the word of God. Second thing that we see in this church is that it's a sharing community. It's not just a learning community. It's a sharing community. We're told in Acts 2, 44 and 46, 
All who believed were together and had all things in common. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Now, when I call this a sharing community, I don't simply mean that they shared each other's possessions. That was happening, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. But when we talk about a sharing community, we're seeing that these people shared their lives together. They were sharing their lives together. There's a Greek word for fellowship. You may have heard it before because it kind of travels around in a lot of Christian books called koinonia. Koinonia is a word that kind of talks about commonness. And that's what we see in this passage. We see that they had all things in common, which is a pretty bold statement when you think about it. This was a group of people who had all things in common? Surely not. Surely these were people that were as irritated by each other as some of us get irritated by each other today. Surely this group of people couldn't really say, well, yeah, we have everything in common. Everything is going right for us. But what it really means when it talks about that is that these people had one thing that was so important, so valuable, that it transcended all the rest of the difference. So that they could truly say about each other, even though we have different ethnic backgrounds, different cultural backgrounds, different political beliefs, different life stories, we have all things in common because we have Christ in common. Because the same savior that paid for your sin is the one that paid for mine. The same savior that gave himself for you is the one that gave himself for me. It bound them together. And this, I I think we have to take a moment here and just recognize how radically different this would have been than anything else in their culture at the time. Just reflect for a minute with me what it would have been like in Jerusalem where they were at, at the, the turn of the millennium. This is a group of people that couldn't be more divided. Their government was a foreign nation. Rome was leading them. They were suffering oppression and taxation and all kinds of things under Rome's hand. And because of that, it had become a really diverse, multicultural area. You had Greek people. You had other Middle Eastern groups coming in. There were Egyptians in the area. Even amongst the Jews themselves, there was extraordinary divisions amongst them. There were groups called the Zealots that thought that they had to fight by force to retake their homeland. There were tax collectors and other Jewish groups that had kind of bought in with Rome and accepted them wholesale. It was a divided place. And yet, Paul tells us in Ephesians 2.14, he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. See, what normally divides us goes away in Christ swallowed up and don't you think that we desperately need this in our day don't you think there's so many around us who hearts hearts ache for something that can break down the walls of hostility between us you know in Jesus's own group of disciples he had two people I love this story two people one called Simon the zealot one called Matthew the tax collector and the Bible is very specific it puts those little addendums at the end of their name so that we can understand who they are Because I mentioned a moment ago, if you were a zealot, you were dedicated towards physically overthrowing Rome. You thought Rome had destroyed your country and so you needed to by force take it back. But if you were Matthew, the tax collector, you were part of this other group. Matthew was making money off his own people. If you were a tax collector, you regularly stole from the Jewish people by taxing them at a higher level than was necessary so that you could pay Rome their taxes and keep a little bit for yourself. Tax collectors were extraordinarily wealthy and not a single Jewish person was happy with them. And all of a sudden, Jesus decides to get a group of guys together and on one side of the room, he puts a zealot. 
And the other side, he puts Matthew the tax collector. What do you think that Simon the Zealot wanted to do to Matthew the tax collector? How do you think that Matthew the tax collector felt about being in a room with Simon the Zealot? I don't know what their day-to-day interactions were like, but I know that at Jesus' resurrection, those two men share in joy together. They weep together. They celebrate together. They go on mission together. They care for one another and sell their possessions for one another because Jesus has done away with whatever existed previously between those two men. Jesus unites divided things and he binds together that which is broken apart. Do we have koinonia fellowship in our church? Do we see one another? Do we share life with one another? Where are we seeking as a church? Where are we keeping our barriers up? We try to kind of build this amongst ourselves by having things like rooted groups and small groups and Bible studies and prayer groups. But even as we do those things, we need to have a devotion in our hearts as the early church did towards Koinonia Fellowship and saying we want to be united together. We want what unites us to be more important to us than what divides us. I want to sit next to someone who has radically different political views than me because Christ has united me to them. I want to sit next to someone in church who's got a radically different story than mine because Christ has made them my brother and sister. I want to sit in a church and be next to someone who comes from a different part of the world, who comes from a whole different story and background. I want God to show me what his church is meant to look like. And we should all share that same devotion. We should say hello to new faces. We shouldn't stick to our own groups. You know, there's been a couple of times in my life where I've had a picture of what Koinonia Fellowship really looks like. And one person here at our church who's helped me see that is Alex Vimont, who's running the slides for us back there. He's probably thrilled that I'm mentioning him randomly in a sermon. But you know why I mention his name? Because Alex, when he joined our launch team, he went out of his way to build a relationship with me and asked me to spend time with him because he wanted to have Koinonia Fellowship with me. He wanted to share our lives. When I was at a really low point in my life, when things had gone wrong and I was broken, Alex decided he wanted to sit with me and talk with me and share about his own life. And I got a picture of this is what church is meant to be. Brothers and sisters getting together, sharing their lives together, going out of their way to introduce one another. It was a great picture. The church is also a praying community. I knew it was dangerous to do six distinctives, so we gotta go quick, but here we go. A praying community, Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. Church was a praying church. Now me and Janae, we I love our marriage, but one of the things that I am always guilty of is that I am not good at making sure that I spend time listening to my wife and having a good conversation with her. After we've had a long day, we come home, I want to sometimes put on Netflix and binge watch some Netflix and watch some stupid show. Usually a nerdy show that Janae is not as thrilled about. But can you, can you imagine a marriage where the whole relationship was built on not talking to each other? That you were married, that you shared a home, that you raised kids together, but you never talked. You know when our marriage is at our best is when we're talking to each other. Is when we're engaging each other. When we said, hey, how was your day today? What's going on in your life? Tell me about your world. And we're genuinely plugged in to hearing from one another. That's what prayer is. Prayer is the way that we engage with the God who loves us, that we can hold a conversation with him. 
You know that all of our planning in a church, all of our mission is of no use if we don't talk to God. I love that Mike Bodge this morning, we were praying for our worship team before the service, and he says, God, we're asking not that you would come and bless our plans, but that we would listen to you. What a beautiful prayer. And I don't pray that enough. The prayer at the start of the church was incredible. This is what Acts 1.14 says. This is when they were praying after Jesus had ascended into heaven, they were praying together. All these were with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. All of God's people, all of the disciples and followers of Jesus had got together and said, let's pray together. This wasn't just something that they did when they went to the synagogue. It wasn't just something that they did when they were in church mode. This was something that was deeply part of their lives. They did it individually. It was power that was accessed through prayer. We're told in Acts 1.31, when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, continued to speak the word of God with boldness. A church without prayer is a marriage devoid of conversation. We're not trying to uphold an idea, we're trying to live in relationship with a risen king. So we've got to be devoted to speaking with him, to listening to him. And I think we've got a lot of growth to do in this. We've strove, since our opening here at North Aurora, we've strove to make prayer an important part of what we do. But I'm so encouraged by people like Kim May and Diane Brees who came to me last week and said, we want to pray for our church. We want to pray for our block party. We want to be a part of what God's doing here and we want to ask him to come and to lead us and to fill us with his spirit. And that's something that we can all be a part of. Praying church is a community not just relying on its own wisdom and its own ideas. It's a church that knows it needs God's grace. It's a church that will always be better because they'll be aware of its, it'll be aware of its flaws. It'll be aware of its weaknesses. It'll be aware of God's calling upon it. Tim Keller says this about prayer. He says, prayer is how God gives us so many of the unimaginable things he has for us. Indeed, prayer makes it safe for God to give us many of the things that we most desire. It's the way that we know God, the way that we finally treat God as God. Prayer is simply the key to everything we need to do and be in life. Church was also a serving community, a serving community. Acts 2.45 says, they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. They were always giving themselves away. Can you imagine that? Selling all of your possessions just so that you can supply for someone else. That's a pretty anti-American sentiment, isn't it? It's a pretty anti-human sentiment. We like to possess and to retain and to hold on. But he was a group of people that said, actually, none of our stuff belongs to us anyway. So what is the benefit of holding on to it if I could actually get rid of it and bless someone else at the same time? This is shocking. Acts 4.32 says, all the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And this stood out in the ancient world, that they would care for one another like this. I read this week this beautiful excerpt from uh, the Roman Emperor Julian, who's writing about the fourth century. So this is kind of the, the 300s. And this is uh, him writing to some of his leaders about the believers in Israel, about the Christians there. 
He, he said atheism, which he called, that's what he called Christianity, atheism, because they didn't believe in the gods of Rome, has been specifically advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. It is a scandal that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar. So he's saying that they're so generous that they're taking care of the poor so that there's no beggars. And that the godless Galileans again, those are what it calls the Christians, care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. While those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render them. You know what the Roman emperor was saying? He says that these Christians, they love one another so much, they serve one another so much, that they're taking care of our poor as well as their own. There's not even a single Jewish beggar. Meanwhile, all of our people are asking us for help and it's, it's putting us to shame that these Christians are doing a better job of taking care of people than their own government. I would love if people could say that about the church today. That we're so radical in our generosity, that we're so concerned with the welfare of our cities and the people around us, that we take such good care of our own that people around us say they take care of their own and ours as well. I've seen stories about this over the years, churches that have covered medical bills for people, churches that have met deep financial needs for people in their congregation. I love that our Shepherd's Heart ministry here at Chapel Street strives to do this. It strives to be a part of our church that can reach out and bless those in need in a variety of ways. There's legal counseling, there's job searching and coaching. There's the food pantry, which is, of course, the biggest part of it. We want to be a church that cares for each other. And by the way, this is not just tithing and giving of our money in, in church services. That's a beautiful a part of worship. But this is not just about money. It's about our time and our resources. Do we give ourselves for one another? Two people who do that really well here in our church is our care team, Sandy Cowett and Kevin Paulson. So grateful for both of them. Who even when they have walked through their own burdens and losses, have sought, how can we find time to bless our church family? And just so you know, that care team is available for anyone who has need here. They're here in seven roles specifically so that when there are needs, they can help people get connected to answers. We want to be devoted to that. This is a worshiping community as well. Acts 2.47 says, Praising God and having favor with all the people. When we want to learn about the early church, here we are this morning and we're getting together and we're thinking about Okay, how can we be like this? What were the distinctives about them? What were the things that they were doing? What were the practices that they had in place? But you know what is interesting about this group of people? They weren't thinking about any of those things. Peter and Paul weren't sitting down saying, hey, let's plan out structures and let's have really great ideas. They were simply worshiping God and it flowed out of them. Jesus was at the center and all of these other things just grew in their presence. Worship, you see, is not simply music. It's not simply gatherings and certain practices. Worship is a wholehearted focus upon Jesus. Upon anything, really. Worship is the turning of the heart and mind towards something and giving it primary affection in our, in our life. So when you think about it that way, there's a lot of things that we worship in our life, most of which we shouldn't. Think about today, right? It's the first Bears game. How many people are anxious to get home to put the Bears game on today? Yep, and you're gonna get there, you're gonna get home. I'm not disparaging Bears fans. I don't like football in general, so don't worry about it. But I'm gonna pick on you a little bit because it's such a great picture of worship. Because if you were in Soldier Field this morning, 
right? If you were waiting for that game, you would see crowds showing up hours before the game starts, right? People are getting food. People are getting ready. They're wearing their jerseys. They've got their favorite player's number on their shirt. All of a sudden, the game starts. And is it silent? Everybody's nice and quiet like in British tennis. Oh, no. People are yelling at the top of their voices, yes, it's amazing. And if something goes wrong, do they keep quiet about it? No, they let everyone around them know. I don't like how that just happened. That's worship. Their mind and their hearts are fully on what's in front of them. Everyone who goes into a soccer game or a football game or a racetrack or different sports, they engage in a type of worship because they are coming to give praise and attention to something that they love. What would it be like if churches give us much praise and attention to what fills our hearts as sports fans did theirs? What if when we gathered here there was so much jubilation, so much joint celebration, so much excitement and passion about the one that we've come here to meet? That's what it was like in Acts 2. The praise amongst them was so full. You know why they did this? C.S. Lewis has a great quote about this. He says, We delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise is not merely expressing the enjoyment in itself, but it's, it's a pointed consummation. It's, it is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it's expressed. What C.S. Lewis is saying is we can have joy in our heart and love in our heart for something, but until we share it with someone, until we express it, it's incomplete. When you truly love something, you can't help but want to talk about it. That's why everybody knows Andrew's into Marvel movies and nerdy stuff. It's because when you love something, you can't help but talk about it. But I pray and I long in my heart that the thing that would be most obviously of greatest importance and affection to me would be Jesus. And I've failed at that sometimes. So praise God that there's grace. He loves me and he forgives me. But I, I pray that God would continue to lead me and our church towards devotion to praising him. Last thing that, I, that this community had was it was a witnessing community. It comes right out of what we've just talked about. If, if our joy is incomplete until we've shared it, then it was only natural that this church shared what was happening in their midst. Acts 2.47, again at the end of it, it says, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Well, how were people being saved? Because they were hearing the message of the gospel. They're hearing what brought these people together in the first place. A church that is devoted to Jesus is a church that is devoted to telling other people about him. We want to be a church that does this, not so that we can push our particular perspectives on people, but because we know we found a king that can meet the longing of every human heart. We should be sharing with our friends, come, come and meet the one who's healed me, who's loved me, who's cared for me. His mercy is available. Jesus said that this is why he formed his church. He said to Peter, I'm going to build my church on your confession that I'm the one that people need. And then he told the disciples before he ascended into heaven, you will be my witnesses. Tell people about me. Don't keep this to yourself. Don't keep it hidden. Tell other people that you have what they need. You know how uh, different that is to a lot of other religious views around the world? Because the whole religion is built on come and do this because God's going to be angry with you if we don't. You know what the message of the gospel is? You know why it's truly good news? We're not telling people, hey, do this or God's gonna be angry with you if you don't. We're saying there's a God who loves you. There's a God who's come for you, who's given himself for you. 
What if it could be said about the church today, the same as it's said about the church in Acts 2, that they held favor with all around them? Does the church hold favor with everyone around it today? Not always, unfortunately. Some of that is for reasons beyond our control, but some of it, we have to be honest, is for reasons that are in our control. We've not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We haven't always set the attention on Jesus. We've set it on politics. We've set it on perspectives and ideas and programs and events. We've got to come back to the God of grace. And the last thing I want to mention on this one is, who adds to their number? The Lord. The Lord added to their number every day. Doesn't that take the pressure off us as we share the gospel? We're not sharing the gospel to try and convince people. We're sharing the gospel to make available something. And then God does the rest. God moves in the hearts of people who need him. You know, Pastor Brian just got back from a trip to Nepal. And he said that one of the most striking things from over there, first of all, he said that they plant a new church on average every 16 minutes in Nepal. Isn't that incredible? It's a, church, it's a country where you're not supposed to really be sharing the message of Jesus. And yet every 16 minutes, a new church started. Now, the way that they do church is very different to us. Those are smaller groups meeting in homes. But the reason it's happening at such a high rate is it's, it's built into the church in Nepal. They say to one another, we need to be sharing our story of what Jesus is doing amongst us. And they told Pastor Brian that they will share their story on average about 100 times before one person gives their life to Jesus. Now think about those two things. A church every 16 minutes, but 100 times they need to share before one person gives their life to Jesus. You put those two things together, what does that mean? They're sharing their story constantly. So that 100 times is nothing to them. How often do we share about our story and what Jesus is doing amongst us? As we close, I just want to think of this. Isn't this sound like a church that you've always wanted? Doesn't it sound like a church that you want to be a part of? I want to be a part of a church like this, but so often, sometimes there is a gap between my experience of church and what I read about in Acts 2. I love church and I want to grow. I want to be devoted, but sometimes I need to look honestly at whether or not I'm being a faithful depiction of what I see in God's word and be willing to let God challenge me and push me in the right direction. The reason why sometimes there's a gap in my experience of church and the church that I want is because the church that I have will be the church that I am personally devoted to. The church experience that I want will be the one that I am personally devoted to. It's worthwhile all of us examining what our level of devotion to learning, to sharing, to praying, to serving, to worshiping, and to witnessing is. It can't be just when it's convenient, easy, straightforward, uncomplicated. But I don't want you to be guilt-tripped this morning. I don't want the idea of this message to be, okay, let's all be a better church, break, go and try your best. No, that's not what drove this church. It's not what's gonna drive this one. The reason why these people were so devoted is because they had met someone who was devoted to them. The Bible isn't about people trying to discover God, but about God reaching out to us. That's what John Stott said. Christ loved the church and he gave himself up for it.
He knew how broken it was, how flawed it was, how imperfect it was, but he chose them and he loved them. Our motivation to be devoted is Christ's devotion to us. His willingness to give himself, to cover us and care for us. If you believe that Christ is devoted to you, then you'll join with Rachel and Stephen saying, I want my neighbors to know this Jesus. Let's be committed to discovering the love of a God who is devoted to us, that we might be a church that is devoted to him. That the world might find his love amongst us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time this morning just to reflect on this vision that you have given us of your church. Lord, we want to be a faithful depiction of what we see in your word. Lord, we want to be a church that's dedicated to learning and growing and serving and ministering and praying. But Lord, we can't do it without you. We're frail and we're imperfect and we need your grace. Help us, Lord, to be the kind of community where your love is found. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.